Lord, we know that you occupy every space, every spot of your creation. That, Lord, whether we meet here in this school building this morning or if we met, as Psalm says, in the depths of the sea or the highest heaven, Lord, you are there. Every place we can go or are, Lord, you're there. You're not just there, Lord, because you're omnipresent, but you're there because in benevolence you love us. You've given us your spirit. You've told us that you'd never leave us or forsake us. Lord, thanks that as that song reminds us, we have a home, a future, home in eternity with you, and we've got this short stay on the earth during which you promised to be with us. And we ask that as we look at this scripture, this story of Ruth this morning, Lord, that you'd be speaking to our hearts the things you want us to hear and know. We pray that your spirit would help our hearts be the fruitful, good soil. When Jesus says there's various kinds of hearts and soils, help our hearts be receptive to the truth of your word this morning. Help us to take away just what you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like, you can turn to Ruth 3, which is where we'll be this morning. If you remember in Ruth chapter 2, Gail, you missed this part. We were talking about harvesting and gleaning. You remember in Ruth 2, Ruth had gone out, and the text said just so happened that she ended up in the field of Boaz, and she found favor in his sight. Do you remember that he told her, he found out who she was and was concerned, and so he talks to her. He says, hey, stay in my fields with my servants. You'll be safe. It'll be good for you. He not only does that, which was easy for him to do, saying stay here, but he goes beyond that. He has her blessed intentionally as the servants leave handfuls, we talked about on purpose, dropped there in the field for her. In chapter 3, we change gears. You remember that chapter 2 ended saying, okay, Ruth's okay for now. She's going to glean in the fields through the barley harvest and then again in the wheat harvest. And things look good. Chapter 3 opens. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well for you? Now, the term security there is the same root word used in verse 9 of chapter 1. If you remember way back at the beginning of the story, when they've lost husbands, all of them lost husbands and sons in Naomi's case, Naomi prays for Orpah and Ruth when she thinks they're both staying there. She says, may God give you rest in the home of a future husband. That's the same word here, security or rest. So way back in chapter 1 in verse 9, Naomi had said, may you find rest in the home of a future husband. Moabite husband. And of course things had changed because Ruth said, no, I'm not staying here. Remember the famous passage, where you go, Naomi, I'm going to go. Where you lodge, I lodge, etc. Your God will be my God. So Ruth had left Moab and any hope of a Moabite husband was left behind too. Here they've come back to Israel, back to the land of Bethlehem. And Naomi says now, shall I not seek this rest for you? Naomi prayed about rest in chapter 1, and here she says, shall I not find rest for you? And if you remember back in chapter 2 as well with Boaz, we said sometimes when you pray about God providing for someone else, you end up being the channel 
or the means of that provision, which is the case with Boaz, both in part in what we've seen and also with what's coming. But Naomi prayed in chapter 1, may God give you rest in the home of a husband. Here in chapter 3, she says, shall I basically not help you find rest in the home of a husband? And you remember we talked too before about kindness being reproduced, kindness breeding kindness. You remember that Ruth had showed kindness to Naomi when without any call to do so, she had left her home, her family, everything she knew, and in kindness had attached herself to Naomi and come back. And now Naomi basically sees, I can show a kindness to Ruth. There's a means by which I can help Ruth find the rest that all of us want, a husband and a family and that kind of security. And she returns that kindness to Ruth in this portion of the story. Now, it's interesting too. Back in chapter 1, when she says, May God give you rest, they're in Moab, and Naomi assumes at that point that Ruth is going back. She's staying in Moab. So her thought for Ruth is, May you find rest in the home of a Moabite husband. And that would be a good thing. Uh, better, uh, uh, that's not a downside. It's a good thing. She'd have a husband. She'd, Lord willing, have a family. She'd have the kinds of blessings and provision, kind of the necessities of life and some of the good qualities of life to celebrate. And that would be a good thing. But when Naomi prayed that, she didn't know the manner in which God would answer that prayer nor the degree to which he would answer it bigger and better than she was thinking or could have imagined at the time, right? Think about this for a minute. Naomi's thought is a good Moabite man, maybe somebody who doesn't beat his wife, you know, goes to work, comes home, but follows the Moabite gods, doesn't know the true and living God. But there would be this measure of security, but in this part of the story, when Naomi now begins to see maybe I can have a role in providing for Ruth's rest, that provision that she thought of earlier now takes on much more significance because while she would have been glad for Ruth to have just any Moabite man, so to speak, God's answer in the end isn't just any Moabite man. It's a godly man. It's a good man. It's a kind man that he's lining up for Miss Ruth much bigger provision, much better provision than Naomi could have thought about back in chapter 1. Neither one of them could have seen that. So Ruth isn't just going to get in this story rest of the kind Naomi initially thought. She's going to get rest of a much higher quality, we could say, provision of a much higher quality. Not only that, but we've talked about this, and this will come up again. Sometimes those hopes and dreams and prayers that are deferred, God not only wants to answer in a bigger, better way than you're thinking initially, but sometimes he wants to answer them in a way that's bigger than just your need, bigger than just the thing you're thinking about at the time. So that when Naomi, back in chapter 1, prays for rest for Ruth, it's a very simple prayer. God's answer, though, is going to provide rest not just for Ruth short term, but think about this too. The union of Boaz and Ruth is destined to bring about the birth of King David two or three generations down the road so that Naomi's prayer for rest for Ruth 
will end up actually providing rest, security, the term used here, for the nation of Israel, and then follow the story further again, will provide rest, peace, and security for the world through her later descendant, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus himself. Remember, the end of this book ends with a genealogy because the writer wants us to know this is a nice story. Remember during a very dark, low period in Israel's history, but it's much more than that. It was a reminder that even during these dark, just morally depraved days of the judges, God was in the midst of that darkness providing not just for the salvation of Israel in their promised Messiah, but for the salvation of the world. And the book ends on the genealogy to remind us this isn't just a nice little story in dark days. This was God's provision for a deliverer, specifically short-term in the person of King David, but longer-term, we know, through his son and his promised heir, the Lord Jesus himself. It's a great reminder, too, that uh, this union, this marriage, combines a Jewish man with a lowly Gentile woman. And it's interesting that later, this combined household, Jew and Gentile, their descendant, Jesus himself, breaks down, Ephesians tells us, the wall that separated Jews and Gentiles and makes his new family, the church, out of both Jews and Gentiles. We could say that this mixed marriage of Jew and Gentile here that's coming up in our story was a picture and a reminder that later God was going to do the same thing on a much grander scale. It's easy for us to forget in the age of the church, but remember Gentiles in past ages were, Paul says, without God and without hope. And if you wanted to find the light of the world, you came to Israel. But when the church age dawned, Jesus says, you go into all the earth and you proclaim this message that you can find, any of us, Gentiles or Jews, can find rest, peace, and security in Jesus' new family, which combines both Jews and Gentiles. And this was certainly a picture of that. So it's a good reminder that God answers our prayers oftentimes bigger and better than we can think initially. Sometimes it takes longer than we care to wait. And speaking of Ephesians, Ephesians 3.20 says that to him, Paul says, to God who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's the way God does things typically. We typically think short term, I just need this. God oftentimes postpones that short answer to prayer because he has something much bigger and better in mind. And let me not leave this verse before I say this too. You remember Boaz, he's a little older guy. He's at least Mark's age or mine, mid-40s, maybe mid-50s. He's older. Now he's single. Here's an older single guy in Israel. This is not the status I'm sure Boaz grew up wanting to occupy, old and single. I've met many older people, older meaning even in their 30s, and I've asked most of them you know, that were single, probably single further than they'd thought about wanting to be single. And I'm not sure I've met one who said this was the plan for my life. I've dedicated my life to be single so I can serve God. I don't think I've met that person yet. I'm sure they're out there, but I've not met them. Well, here's Boaz. 
Now, let's, we, we don't know his situation. The story doesn't tell us. Had he been married earlier and widowed? Don't know. Doesn't say. Maybe just for the sake of discussion, maybe for whatever reason, maybe he was heartbroken in his youth and he gave up on love. Or maybe his parents tried to betroth him and it didn't work out. She died. Or, you know, there could be tragic stories or nothing. No story. Who knows? We don't know. But my point would be this. Here's this middle-aged guy who probably all his life had wanted the same kind of rest that Naomi wants for Ruth. That is, a spouse, a family, the joys and the kind of happiness God gives people on earth through having families. But he's probably past hope of that. I suspect he'd prayed to Yahweh, the God of Israel, for a wife. And the years rolled by, and he didn't have one. And maybe he'd given up hope. And I say all that for this. Let's just assume he's prayed, nothing's happened, and he's quit talking to God about it. And he's just going to die out his days, an old single guy. And his name will perish in Israel, one of the themes of this book. And then look what God does. We won't get this far in the story, but I want you to see what God does here. Let's just assume Boaz is past hope of a wife, and life has gone on. And remember, he's a good man. He's a godly man. He's a kind man. He is a great example for any of us. He is a hero in the Bible. And one night, like any other night, he's going to be working on the threshing floor, and he's going to lie down, and go to sleep, unmarried again. And while he's sleeping, God is going to give him a wife. Think about that one. He goes to sleep. He goes to bed, just like he has a thousand other nights. And that night, while he's sleeping, God delivers, as if by magic, a wife to his feet. And and take this back further. Think of the opening chapters of Genesis. When God provides Adam with a wife, how does he do it? He makes Adam lie down in the dust of the ground, and he puts him to sleep. And while he's sleeping, God forms a wife for him. And when he wakes up, there she is. It's the same thing here. Boaz had probably given up on his hope or his prayer for rest and peace in a wife and a family. And one night while he's sleeping, God answers his prayer. He wakes up, and there she is. I kind of like this. Well, Naomi continues, Isn't Boaz our kinsman? Isn't he our relative with whose maids you've been working? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Kinsman is an important word here. There's actually two words in this text for relative or kinsman. We won't go into that today, but this plays a key role in the story. In fact, it's everything. If Boaz isn't a kinsman, there's no story. But he's a kinsman. And so Naomi says, hey, we've got this option that I want to exercise. Remember, these women knew that they had the legal right because the law provided it for their needs by going and gleaning in the fields during harvest. Well, I think a light's gone on for Naomi thinking the law provided for us to get something to eat. She remembers another provision of the law that provided for widows to get husbands. She tells Ruth to do this. Wash yourself, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man, that is Boaz, 
until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. You shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he'll tell you what you shall do. Verse 5, And she said to her, All that you say I will do. So here's the picture. The grain's there on the threshing floor. And the practice was you gather up the grain at night with the evening breeze. You've beaten out the grain, tried to separate the hull or the husk, you know, the chaff from the grain. Throw it up in the air. The breeze pulls most of it away and you're left with the grain. The trouble would be, of course, that you'd have all your harvest sitting here in the middle where anyone could take it. So typically, the field owners would sleep at the threshing floor at night as a means of protecting their grain. So, Naomi's plan for Ruth's rest is use the law, this provision of the law, which we'll get into in chapter 4. And she tells Ruth, I want you to wash up, perfume up, put on your best clothing, then go down to the prince's ball and dance with him at midnight. He'll propose to you and life will be great from then on. Hmm. That's another story, isn't it? Let's see. Okay, wash up, put on your perfume and your best clothes, and then go down to the dusty, dirty threshing floor. Okay, and, and then hide until it gets dark. And watch where Boaz lies down to go to sleep, and then wait until you know he's asleep and everyone else is. Then sneak up in the dark, and uncover with his robe or his blanket, whatever he brought that night, his feet. Then lie down at his feet in your best clothing, in the dust and the dirt and the chaff, and wait till he wakes up at some point, and then he'll tell you what to do. Wow, such a plan. I wonder if Ruth would have come up with this on her own. Now, you know, even if you make provision for Middle Eastern customs, this is an odd, odd plan. This is an odd way to get a husband. It, is, it sounds odd, and it's certainly potentially humiliating, right? Now, just put yourself in Ruth's shoes and think about it this way. Uh, one, Boaz is this old guy. He's not the young stud down in the harvest fields, you know, bronzed and tan. He's old. He's probably got gray hair. You know, if Ruth's thinking about her next husband... Boaz ain't it. I mean, he doesn't look like Boaz. Remember, she's still young. She probably married in her teens. She was married for no more than 10 years. She's probably still in her 20s. She's a young woman. In fact, she's called a young woman throughout the story. So her idea of a, of a perfect catch is not Boaz. It's not this over-the-hill guy. Maybe he's got a little, a little tire around his middle like I'm developing. You know, he's not, he's not her picture of the perfect husband. So the second thing is, too, uh, the plan involves Ruth. She's going to clean up, put on her best perfume and her best clothing so that she can go and lie down in the dirt and the dust and the chaff of the threshing floor. How much sense does that make? And then three, by the way, if you're going to talk to Boaz about becoming a husband, why in the world would you go about it this way? Why not talk to him at the edge of the field? Why not invite Boaz over for lunch? This would make much more sense to me. I mean, if you or I were there, maybe can you hear the whines? Oh, I don't want to do that. Imagine this is a young teenager. Can you imagine? I don't want to do that. I'll be embarrassed. I feel stupid. 
I mean, on and on it could go, right? This is a weird plan, potentially humiliating. But the only words out of Ruth's mouth are, all that you say, I will do. All that you say, I will do. I'll wash up. I'll put on my best. I'll hide in the dark. I'll sneak up on him in the dark. I'll lie down in the dust and the dirt. And I'll wait until he wakes up. All that you say, I will do. Not a single word of complaint. Only a very humble acceptance of Naomi's plan. We, as a family, had watched a movie years ago that I've had to query my girls about because I thought we had it and we didn't. This is it. They always want to know what I'm teaching on Sunday morning, and I make them wait. And so I asked them about the movie. They knew it was an illustration. They just didn't know for what. This is an old Wonderworks movie. The library used to have it. They don't carry it anymore. It's called How to Be Practically Perfect in Three Days. And if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride, Vincini, I can't remember this guy's real name, Sean something. He's a character and a half. He's in this movie. Anyway, the movie's about a young klutz, a young adolescent klutz named Milo. And Milo is a mess. He's not a good student. He's uh, messy at home. He's not really good at anything. He trips over his own feet. He's not liked, etc., etc. He's every adolescent's nightmare. His life is not what he wants it to be. He's going along one day. And he finds a note, and the note leads to a stranger. And the stranger tells him, Mr. Vincini, whatever his name is in this movie, tells him that he can make him practically perfect in just three days. It'll cost him the most valuable thing he has, and he'll have to accomplish three tasks. Well, the kid's up for it, and he takes it on and says, okay. Each day he gets a message, and it tells him that day what he must do. Day one, the first command is that he cannot eat for 24 hours can't eat for 24 hours. Now, you know, young adolescent boys are bottomless pits when it comes to food, so this would be tough anyway. But to complicate matters, his older brother, who's trying to make up to him because they've been estranged over an accident, makes him his favorite dinner. And he's got to come home. He can't eat to start with, but now he can't eat his favorite dinner, and he's got to insult his brother, who's trying to make up with him by saying, sorry, I'm not hungry. Can't eat tonight. So he gets through the 24 hours, he insults his brother, he exercises self-discipline, and the stranger tells him at the end of the day that he's learned self-control, which all practically perfect people must have, self-control. He made it. He's learned one key lesson. The second day brings the second command, and this one's a little, this is the one I remember. It's to wear a stalk of broccoli around his neck all day at school. Yeah, right, I know. Yeah. Wear a broccoli stock at school. Remember, he's an outcast anyway. So now he goes to school and he's chided and mocked all day because he's wearing a broccoli stock around his neck. And everybody's wondering, what is this strange kid who we don't like anyway? Now what is he doing? So he's mocked all day. When the stranger comes to him at the conclusion of that day's task, he tells him, I can't believe you did such a stupid, embarrassing thing as wear that broccoli at work, at school all day. And he says, you know what? If you can do that, you can do anything and not worry about what someone else will think about you. You've learned your second lesson. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about what other people will think. No big deal. 
The third day and the third command is a little trickier. He's told he must think up something, do something that he's never done before and something that he would think he can never do, something that just seems to be impossible. And the day's wearing on and he's not come up with his impossible, hard to do, unthought of task. The stranger in the story comes in disguise and helps him out a little bit. They're actually at a kite flying contest. And the stranger comes along with a whole bunch of helium balloons. Don't try this at home, what I'm about to tell you, T. Our friend, our hero, Milo, takes all the helium balloons. The light's gone on. He attaches them to a lawn chair. And with his trusty umbrella, he rides the lawn chair, lifted by the helium balloons, up into the kite flying contest. That's his impossible, never thought I could do it, would never have thought of doing it task. And the mean boys that are always getting him in the movie anyway, they have a shark kite. And you know what they do with the shark kite? They fly it into his balloons, popping his balloons to, get, to bring poor Milo back to earth. But he takes out his trusty umbrella and he slays the shark and he wins the kite flying competition. <laughs> yeah. And he, when he uh, meets with the stranger afterwards, he tells him he's learned the lesson that practically perfect people are willing to take on challenges that otherwise appear impossible. So here's our, our hero, Milo, is this klutz. Life's not what he wants it to be. It does not look the way he wanted it to be. And he's willing to do these stupid, embarrassing, humiliating things because he wants his life to change, because he's looking for his version of rest or security. In this story, Naomi's plan, I'm sorry, sounds like a real loser to me. It's potentially humiliating and embarrassing. It requires her to do stupid, unnecessary things, dressing up in your best to lie in the dirt. I mean, how much sense does this make? But Ruth's only response is, all that you say, I will do. Her blessing and the answer to this prayer and God's provision through this whole story rests again on her humility and her willingness to say to Naomi's crazy plan, all that you say, I will do. I'm struck in Acts 17 later when the Apostle Paul, about a thousand years later, is speaking to a very sophisticated group on Mars Hill in Athens. And he tells them this ridiculous story about a God-man who came to earth and was humiliated on a Roman cross and executed and died. And then Paul said he rose from the dead. And somehow this paid for the sins of the world. And somehow this is this strange God's story. And, you know, most of those on the hill that day, they listened to this stupid, embarrassing, foolish story and they rejected it. But a few believed. And with Ruth they said, to Paul, all that you say will do. Or think a chapter earlier in Acts, in Acts 16, this Philippian jailer who's freaked out because he thinks his prisoners have escaped and he's going to have to kill his own life, take his own life before the Romans do it for him. And he says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And the story in Acts doesn't give us his words, but it tells us he believes. So that just like Ruth, we know that the 
response of his heart was the same as Ruth's to this crazy story about this Jewish guy who was executed and rose from the dead. We know that the jailer's response was Ruth's response to Paul. Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We know that the jailer's response, at least in heart, if not in word, was, all that you say, I will do. And he comes into the kingdom. It's interesting to me that both in salvation as well as 101 things in life, you and I, like Naomi, we pray for something. Or like Ruth, we hope for something better. Typically, though, God's provision does not look the way we think it should. It doesn't meet our criteria or our standards for the way we want our story written. Oftentimes, God's ways appear to this wise world to be foolishness. Foolishness. And certainly, Naomi's plan to Ruth had to have sounded squirrely or foolish. But of course, Ruth's blessing and her future and her rest and her peace and Israel's peace and the world's peace lies on this response. Humble response, accepting response, all that you say, I will do. If you and I cultivate that kind of attitude and that kind of response, doesn't mean we do every stupid thing. You don't have to wear broccoli, by the way, to do this. But you know, when you understand that God's provision for your life, just as it was for our salvation, looks a little outside the square, looks a little outside the box, you don't reject it for that. If that's God's provision, we want to develop Ruth's attitude. All that you say, Lord, I'll do. It's in that attitude and it's in that phrase, that submission of heart to God and His will, that you and I have blessing and answers to prayer bigger and better than we could have imagined both in this life but also in eternity to come. Let's pray. Lord, I am struck by the heroine of our story, Ruth, in the degree and the manner in which her kindness and her humility are displayed. And Lord, I know that you repeat over and over both testaments of your word that you are opposed to the proud, Lord, but that you give grace to the humble. Father, help us to remember to occupy before you the humble place. Help us to remember Ruth and her response to directions that didn't seem to make sense, to a plan that looked embarrassing. Lord, help us to cultivate that same heart of humble acceptance to your will and your provision when things don't look the way we wanted them, Lord. When you delay your answer to our prayer, or when your provision, Lord, doesn't look the way we wanted it to, help us to say with Ruth, all that you say, we will do. In Jesus' name, amen.